every movie, every TV show has brought you here. To the MTV Movie and TV Awards hosted by Drew Barrymore. I can't believe it. And sure, I might be hosting, but great movies and TV shows, they're made for fans. To make you laugh more, cry more, <laughs> bury more. So you get out there and fan so hard because it's the biggest night to be a fan. The 2023 MTV Movie and TV Awards, live Sunday, May 7th at 8, 7 central on MTV. I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And and this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we take the beats of a celebrity memoir and we reform them with our opinions into one hell of a tune. We sample them. If you don't want our remix, then just go read the book. But if you like what we're doing here, baby, crank it. Ashley, if you were a celebrity, what would you call last week's chapter? I would call my memoir chapter... Ashley, the determination is nice, but how about apply it to something that counts? This week, Claire and I ran a half marathon, kind of. We were scheduled to run a half marathon, and then it rained so hard, and we both like hadn't trained for it at all. But I feel like I had spent so much time being like, okay, after our tour, after a bunch of other shit that we have going on, the half marathon is like the grand finale of everything before I can like really settle in and like start a proper routine. And I kept on just like thinking of it as this finish line moment in our busy spring. And I needed it to happen, even though I had not prepared for it in any way other than just thinking about it and putting a lot of mental weight on it. So then when we woke up the morning of the half marathon and it was pouring rain and we were like, all right, we have not trained for this. We have not prepared for this in any way. To go out and like get soaking wet for four hours while we trudge through a race is just not a good use of time. But I was like, we have to do something. So we went to a gym and decided to do 13 miles on the treadmill. And I ended up doing nine miles on the treadmill. And then we walked another four miles to make it equal 13. And for what? I'm proud of myself for being like, you have to finish this thing. Something I'd like to see myself do is apply that level of tenacity to something that counts. I know I'm capable of stupid shit. And now I'd like to see it. I say, Ashley, let's see what you can do elsewhere. I can't wait. Claire, if you were to write a chapter about your week, what would you call it? Boiled. (laughs) Oh my God, who got boiled? Almost nothing. I am in my Betty Crocker era. I am in my hosting era. I'm being very hosterly these days. I'm hosting a Mother's Day party in a couple of weeks. I hosted a party this weekend that I think was fun. I hosted eight boys in my home, which didn't really ask much of me except for to allow them in the home, which was, I thought was very nice of me. And I'm just like becoming a domestic goddess. We're in wedding prep season, I think. So I'm trying to be a little healthy. I'm trying to cook at home. You know, I'm trying to get in the kitchen where the wives should be. <laughs> so I started this weekend with something that I thought was quite reasonable. This was just yesterday. I said, I think a smart thing to do would be to have hard-boiled eggs on hand as a little high-protein snack. I've always dreamt of doing that, but I can never quite boil the eggs. (laughs) Okay, so ask me how many times I attempted to boil eggs before I got it done. How many? Three. Okay, what went wrong? (laughs) The first time I boiled the water, and something that always shocks me about water is it takes so long to boil. That's so true. And so by the time it got boiling, literally, I saw the bubbles start to form, and I said, I don't have another six minutes. I have to get out of here. I didn't have anywhere to go, but just mentally, I couldn't take it anymore. I said, I can't just keep focusing. So I gave up, and I said, I'll try again tonight. How did you get it boiled if you were focusing that hard? You know what they say about watched pots. I wasn't focusing, but you can't forget. So the amount of time I had spent not forgetting by the time it, I was just like, I'm over it. I don't want to keep going anymore. So then that night I went to hard boil my eggs and I actually still had the same pot of water right on the stove. (laughs) Second time's the charm. So I boiled the water and then do you know what happened? No. Just as my fear from earlier in the day, I totally forgot. And do you know where I went? Home. Next door to have a drink with the neighbor for an hour and 45 minutes. And when you came back, it was all evaporated. Luckily, I came back because me and Mac then he had to go get something to eat. I went in to grab a jacket and I was like, what is that smell? And then I went, oh, no, the eggs. You could smell it in the house, but nothing had caught fire. But it was that thing where all the water had boiled and it was just a lot of salt at the bottom. I turned off the oven. I said, tomorrow, we'll try again tomorrow. And did you? 
Yeah, this morning I hard boiled six eggs. Five of them worked. One of them cracked and got kind of foamy. But hey, you know what they say? Three times five eggs. That's a great ratio of failure to success. You know what they say? If at first you don't succeed, get yourself up and try again. Yeah. Who said that? Aaliyah. And who do you think told her to say that? Timbaland told her. And do you know anything about him? I do now. I know that he's the emperor of sound. I can't wait to learn. Let's dive into this week's episode, shall we? Timbaland, the emperor of sound. That was very NPR of you. Thank you. I want to start out by saying that I fell in love with Timbaland the way I fall in love with most of our male musicians, but I think he's good. I think that he doesn't always treat women well, but I think he always says sorry. Yeah. And I think that he is like very passionate about his craft. And I also like that he has a girl best friend. Yeah. And a lesbian at that. So that must be something. So he opens with a prelude, a catalog of sound. And he talks about all the songs that he loved. And he says, in a business where people do a lot of talking and more than talking, a lot of bragging, I've distinguished myself by my ability to listen. Like most musicians, I live a very nocturnal life. Once I heard late night talk show host Larry King say, I remind myself each morning, nothing I say this day will teach me anything. So if I'm going to learn, I must do it by listening. He talks a lot about the way sound inspires him. And there's just like music in the world around you. He talks a lot about being inspired by the sound of rain and footsteps. And he loves to quote other people. I think that that shows what a good listener he is. I do think throughout this book, something I noticed is that he has like a varying array of references. Mm-hmm. And I did find it very interesting. And I do think it speaks to him as a producer that he is constantly collecting like different areas of expertise. And I like this quote. He says, anyone who's argued with someone they love knows the limits of language. 26 letters in the alphabet and you can only rearrange them in so many ways. But sound is infinite. So Timbaland was born in 1972 in Norfolk, Virginia. I think it's Norfolk. <laughs> Norfolk. <laughs> he was always very inspired by sound. He loved to peel apart the sounds of music. He was raised in a very musical family. His mom always took him to church and he loved listening to the music at church. His dad would always play records for him. And he loved really peeling apart, like within his own mind, the instruments within music. And he says by the time he was 10, he was pretty good at identifying every instrument on a track, which is quite impressive because I've never really thought about it. And listening to some of his music as he was describing it, I was like, that is a cool sound that I'd never even thought about before. We didn't have much, but my parents got me a brand new Fisher Price toy record player for Christmas the year I turned three. He says, my dad worked at a trucking company and my mother was a registered nurse who worked two jobs to keep the family afloat. Seems like every time I saw my folks, they were getting off work or on their way to work. I'm a workaholic and proud of it. My parents worked hard and through their actions, they taught me the meaning of the word. They also taught him a lot about just being there. So his mom was very encouraging of his singing. And he's like, I honestly am not that good of a singer. And I didn't show any particular promise, but she just liked to hear me sing and would always encourage me and just spend time with me and say like, oh, no, keep doing that. I like that you're doing that. And more than that, when he was a baby, he loved to like tap things and hear the sounds that they make. And she would completely support it. My mother encouraged me to beat on pots, drum on the table, stomp around the house. I may have a prodigious ability to collect and catalog sounds, but my mother, worn out and tired from a long day's work, gave me the space I needed to flex that gift, to play with it, to toss it around and watch it grow. Which is a lot, because listening to a baby just make a ton of noise is annoying. So he's saying in church, his mom was very religious. Sometimes he said they would do these things called lock-ins, where you just like lock yourself in the church for the whole weekend and just pray. Yeah, and even when they weren't specifically locking in for the whole weekend, he still said that church wasn't just a Sunday morning thing. They would go the whole day on Sunday. He grew up with his dad, showing him all his records, playing music all Saturday. Rick James, he loved. Prince, those were people who really taught him stuff. The thing I love about this book is that he just is so passionate about the composition of music. A lot of times when we read people just like going on tangents about stuff they like, it's not that interesting. Like two weeks ago in Sporty Spice's book, when she's just like talking about the things that happened in a certain year, it just takes up space. But the way you can like feel the passion through the page when he's like talking about the instrumentals on a Rod Stewart track, you're just like, oh, I like it because you like it. And the way you're talking about it is so like emotional and in depth. I'd sit and listen to the trumpets, the keys, the drums and imagine myself right there in the studio with them. I knew that for most folks, all of the instruments blended together, but for me, the joy was separating them in my mind then layering them back together. You know the way some kids like to take apart a toaster and put it back together again? That's the way I was with songs. By the time I was 9 or 10 years old, I could pick out each instrument on a track and follow along like a conductor in training as it entered and exited the piece. 
So his family did not have a lot of money. We may have been living just above the poverty line in the Robin Hood housing complex, but surrounded by music, both my father's records and the instruments that I owned, I felt like the richest kid in the world. As poor as we were, my mom saw my love of music and found a way to get me violin lessons. I can't play the violin today, but I remember holding it up against my chin when I was a kid, wondering how I could make that instrument sound like it belonged on a Rick James song. So he did get in trouble a lot at school for being noisy. Because even if you have a family at home that's like, oh, that's great. Keep playing the drums on that pot. I will tell you what. I don't think there's a classroom on earth that would like that. And he's like, no, teachers should be more encouraging of your passions. And I'm like, I feel you. They should be. But also if you're banging on the table during class, that is hugely distracting. And he says that's where he got his desire to be special. Because in order to survive that, we develop a one day I'm going to show them attitude. And to truly nurture that drive, that skill, when the world has always been down on you, you've got to puff yourself up. So you have the image of those who've underestimated you paired with all the willpower and confidence it takes to make it. And it might look like you've got a big head, you're out of control, you think you're all that, but that's not the case. You're just a person wanting to be seen and be valued for the gifts you've brought to this world. He talks about getting a bad report card and his dad being upset and being like, listen, your music can be a hobby, but you have to get through school in order to get a job to provide for your family. That's the only way to make a living. So keep doing your music. School has to be the priority. And for a long time, he really took that as his dad not believing in him. And then he was like, oh, no, my dad just like wants the best for me. Meanwhile, I looked to my mother. She didn't say anything. She didn't have to. I knew she believed in me. She was the one who said, just keep going. And she really understood that this could be how he makes it. So they start out in the projects and then eventually they move to Virginia Beach and they're able to buy a home. And that's a really big deal for them. And he says that they take them out of a situation where like all the God and present parenting in the world wouldn't stop them from being somewhere dangerous. And now they're in a safer, like middle class, working class suburb. I think that you get that from Gucci Mane's book where you're like, you are a good kid, but just being in the presence of all of that, there's just not a way to escape it. And it sucks you in because once you're in, you can only get deeper. Mm -hmm. I don't know what year his brother Garland was born, but he says he loved Garland and Garland was fast and witty and he was more quiet and introverted. So they balanced each other out. So one day his dad finally buys him a set of turntables. And this is the real aha moment for him where he's like, okay, my dad just shows his encouragement in a different way. He doesn't not believe in me. He just needs me to have a backup plan, which is school. I feel like that is really fair. And it's not something you can see when you're younger because he's like all these people, they become so successful and they like drop out of high school and it's no big deal. And it's like, yeah, but if they hadn't become successful, they wouldn't have a high school diploma. And he's like, oh, my dad does believe in me. And that is the day he became DJ Timmy Tim. It's a cute story, too. He says he was outside playing and his dad is like, get in here, go to your room. And he's like, what could I possibly have done to get myself in trouble? And he goes into his room and there's the Gemini turntables. And it was a really big deal. So his real name is Timothy, Timothy Mosley. And so his first name is DJ Timmy Tim, as Ashley said. And he spends all of his time learning to be the best DJ he can be. He gets really into fading between tracks and just like figuring out what people want to hear. He goes around town to get DJ gigs. He, I think, is in middle school. So he's just like DJing middle school parties. Yeah. And like community center parties. And he gives it his all. And he's working really hard to build up his like repertoire of music so that he can appeal to everybody. He says, I knew I wanted to appeal to a lot of people with my DJ style. I didn't just want to raise the roof for hip hop fans or bring in the noise for people who love R&B. I was inspired by Mantronics because I wanted to blend sounds together in surprising ways to create music and sets that would be a little familiar to everyone, but also have that element of being brand new at the very same time. In the music business, which loves to label you, they say I'm an artist who crosses over. But to my mind, I make music that I love and everyone who enjoys it crosses over to me. And I like love that sentiment. I love that because I do feel like you can feel it so much throughout this book that his whole goal is to just like make people fall in love with music the way he loves music. And when you listen to some of the songs he's produced, I'm like, (laughs) nailed it. (laughs) Another fun little fact is that he grew up with Pharrell. So he talks about after he starts DJing, his next step was to make music. So he starts making music. And yeah, alongside him in town is a little person you may have heard of. Named Pharrell Williams of the band N.E.R.D. And of big hat fame. He has the biggest hat in showbiz. Except maybe Slash. I don't know. You'd have to compare them by volume. (laughs) But he says that he and Pharrell like might be cousins. They're not actually Sure. If you look on Wikipedia, Wikipedia labels them as cousins, but he's like, no, we like might be distant cousins, but we're just like from the same town. They're just friends who like grew up together. Their parents went to the same church. They, I think, went to middle school together at one point. 
But it's fun because they grow up and even though they're not always working together, I guess they were the standouts that were always pushing each other. It seems like Pharrell from an earlier age had his eye on the prize. But I don't know what would have happened to Timbaland without Pharrell. I think Pharrell being there early pushed him to take it seriously. So Timbaland, he's still DJ to meet Tim, of course. And he's DJing around town. Pharrell is working at this time with a guy. Well, okay. Timbaland says Chad and Hugo are Pharrell's two buddies. But I'm pretty sure it's one guy named Chad Hugo. See, I like to imagine that in the group there was multiple. There's a Chad Hugo and a Hugo. And if I met somebody who said, here's my two best friends, Chad Hugo and Hugo. Like, what if somebody met us and your last name was Claire? What if you were like, oh, you know that podcast, Ashley, Claire and Claire? (laughs) That would make an impression on me. And I I choose to live in the world where that's. Okay, so according to Timbaland, he had a group with these cats named Chad and Hugo that he'd met at band camp. According to the current state of Pharrell's producing partnership, he has one partner named Chad Hugo, who he met at band camp. So whatever happened to the other Hugo, did he ever exist? It's TBD. Anyway, so they're both around the scene, like pushing each other. Timbaland has a job at the local food lion bagging groceries. and. Pharrell comes in and says, hey, are you trying to make music? Like, let me know when you're ready to go that route. I want to be on the radio. As Pharrell started to leave the store, he doubled back to tell me something. You really need to start thinking about taking this music thing seriously, he said. You know, Virginia Beach, it's small around here. Everyone's talking about you. You're a big fish in a small pond. Take advantage of it. So one problem that Timbaland had is that his friends were into fighting. And drinking. So by the time he was like a sophomore, the summer before sophomore high school year, Him and his friends are into drinking cheap liquor. And then when they get drunk, they're just always getting in trouble. They're always picking fights. Timbaland seems like he's the mediator a lot and always trying to calm him down. And he doesn't really want to be there. You can tell he's the one who's like, this can't be what life is about. But those are his friends. And that's what he's doing with his time. He says, I was 15 and I thought that being a friend meant being loyal to the end. He knew that his friends were kind of going down a bad road and he didn't want to be part of it, but he didn't know what else to do because it felt like a violation of the code to just ditch your buddies. But the fights were escalating and escalating. So at one point, one of his friends, he has two friends named Caleb and Joe. Joe gets stabbed and he's horrified. They didn't know if Joe was going to make it. So then a couple of weeks later, Caleb gets stabbed. And now Timbaland's like, what the? Like, did you both not learn your lesson? And he's hoping that this calms things down. Like, you see how bad it was. Caleb turns around and gets a gun. And Timbaland's like, well, that's not really like de-escalating the situation. Yeah. And then Caleb pulls the gun at a party. And that's when Timbaland is like, okay, I need to draw a line. I need to stop hanging out with you guys. Because I was standing so close to Caleb at this party where he pulled a gun. Anyone who like was in shock from the moment could have pointed to any of us and said that we were the one with the gun. The police aren't known for really sitting down and getting the nuance of a situation of like young black teenage Like boys. we are three guys who roll together and we're all standing right there where the gun was pulled. <laughs> Especially because he said when they saw him go to pull the gun, they went to like wrestle it away from him. After the gun gets pulled, everybody runs for their life. Timbaland says, once I had run away from the house, I slumped down to the curb and tried to catch my breath. I could feel my heart pounding. I had a feeling I'd never experienced before. I was so grateful to have my life. Caleb was my boy, but enough was enough. I had to figure out a way to keep my distance. I gave up drinking in vacant lots with Caleb and Joey, and I focused on my parties and staying out of trouble. I was DJ Timmy Tim. I just wanted to make people dance. I love that about him. So this is when, a few months later, he's like trying to expand his music and his repertoire, and he joins forces with Pharrell. My boy Melvin, Chad, Mike, his girlfriend, Tamika, and Larry, who's his hype man dancer. And I guess at the very early days of DJing, you'd either have an MC or a dancer. So Larry danced. And this is also what we learned from Will Smith's book. So Will Smith had this kind of setup as well, where they like, you kind of have a crew that you roll with, and you've got an MC and a dancer and some people who are making beats, and you all kind of have your place. And it sounds so fun to just like all be in the basement putting music together. He says also this is when he started going from DJ to producer. We recorded as many songs as we could, hoping that the local stations might give us a shot. The big hip hop station at the time was 103 Jams. And he says they always got rejected, but their band name was Surrounded by Idiots. And they're like, that just made us sure that we were surrounded by idiots because we knew we were good. They couldn't see the promise. They were idiots. (laughs) And I'm like, well, I don't know. If I was a DJ looking at it now and I said Timbaland and Pharrell were knocking at my door, you look like an idiot. (laughs) I mean, when you think about the discography between the two of them, I don't know the age group of people listening to this, but for me and Claire, like our probably middle school, high school and college years dominated like they made every song that I've ever wanted to dance to in my entire fucking life. 
I don't know if you've ever dreamt of visibly thicker hair or maybe a little bit less shedding. When I sweep the ground in my apartment, I'm always like, oh, bug sheds so much. And when I scoop it up, it is probably 50-50 me and bug. I don't know if it's stress causing shedding or if it's the other way around, but Nutrafol knows that to address any of these problems, you have to address all of them. Their whole body wellness approach with their medical grade supplements can help you feel better and look better in that order. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement for women clinically shown to improve your hair growth, visible thickness, and visible scalp coverage. From postpartum to menopause and no matter the root cause, Nutrafol has four unique formulas to support women. Each is physician formulated using natural, drug-free, medical-grade ingredients to get you the most reliable results. Go to Nutrafol.com to take their health wellness quiz, identify the cause of your thinning hair, and Nutrafol will give you a personalized plan for better hair growth through whole body wellness. Their supplements support healthy hair growth from within by targeting the root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole body health. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved growth after six months. I'm so excited about being able to try Nutrafol because let me tell you what. First of all, I wish I had thicker hair. Second of all, I wish it shedded less. Third of all, I got a haircut recently that was a few more inches than I had planned, and I am excited to grow this puppy out. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code WORM. Find out why over 3,500 healthcare professionals recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code WORM. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code WORM. So he leaves the food line and he gets another little job making minimum wage at Red Lobster. And he says, I've never been too good for any job. I've always managed to keep some change in my pocket. A lot of rappers brag about being a hustler. I was always a worker. And I really like and am interested by that distinction. And at Red Lobster, he once again becomes the mediator in a new group of friends. He's just always the guy trying to simmer down conflict. And one day, one of the guys at Red Lobster comes in looking for another one of the guys, and he has a gun. He comes in and he says, where's your boy? Yeah. I got something for your boy. I rolled my eyes and asked, what you got? He smirked and said, I got this. Before I could even make out what was in his hand, I heard a loud pop. It was a gunshot. The man had pulled out his revolver and the gun had gone off accidentally. Oh, shit, Tim, my bad, he said, holding the gun and looking at me in shock. So Timberland gets shot in the shoulder. His arm becomes completely numb and they rush him to the hospital and the doctors are like, we'll do more damage if we try to pull the bullet out. So we have to just hope that his like nerves heal around the bullet and he like regains use of his arm. And his mom is like, what the fuck are you talking about? But that is just all they can do. And after months and months and months, he seven does months. get feeling back in his arm. He had a fully paralyzed arm for seven months. And they had stopped giving him physical therapy after a couple of weeks because they're like, well, it's not working. So I guess you're done, though. And at first he's freaking out because he was like, if I can't be a DJ, what am I going to do? Like, if I can't use both of my arms, I don't know how to do it. And then he like really gets some gumption and is like, I'm just going to be the best one armed DJ in the fucking world. He would like put his hand on the turntables and just move it with his shoulder. He said it was so painful when he got feeling back, but he like pushed through the pain to be able to train it again. And damn, good for you. I have to say that is the funniest story in the world. And he said that he goes, if it hadn't happened to me, I'd recognize that it's funny to get shot by friendly fire at a red lobster. Like what in the world? What in the world? To have someone shoot you by accident in the back of a red lobster is preposterous. He mentions it a few times throughout the book of like things he's been through. And he's like, I mean, I was shot in a red lobster. Every time it comes up, I'm like, after everything I've survived, this, that, the red lobster shooting. I'm like, okay, well, that was just like a freak accident. That is crazy that this happened. Anyway, so then Pharrell kind of talks to him and is like, listen, I got to go do my own thing. And he really respects that Pharrell just like came to him directly and said, I want to work on a different project now. We can still be boys because he's like, it would have been very easy to just ghost me. And he comes back to this moment a few times throughout the book about having to just like face confrontation because it's the nicer thing to do. And they are boys to this day. My parents separated my senior year of high school, and I still went to church with my mom every Sunday, and I always felt like God was watching over me. I missed my father, but as he began doing long-distance truck driving, he was gone for weeks at a time. In some ways, knowing that he was out on the road softened the blow of him not living with us anymore. There's also a little bit of a silver lining to this Red Lobster shooting, and it is that he gets a pretty sick settlement from it, and he's able to start buying some pretty advanced equipment. Can I say, I don't understand how it's Red Lobster's fault. He sues them for safety negligence. 
And I'm like, is that who shot you? The lobster? The red lobster? I will say in this situation, like, what is he going to sue the guy who came to Red Lobster with a gun? Like, what money is there? No, I know nobody's there, but I still can't believe he won. Like, if someone walked in here now and shot us by accident, could I sue you? I think yes, because we have liability insurance on this space. And the insurance would pay it out? I don't know. Should we try it? If anybody wants to walk in here and like shoot me as a prank, just so we could see what we get from the liability insurance. Okay, can I actually just like add on to this and say, please don't? I think this would constitute insurance fraud. So I'm not can gonna you say leave do this it. In and just like not shoot me. Okay, don't do it. <laughs> I can't believe we have liability insurance. We're like real business owners. I know. Anyway, so now that he has this recording equipment from his Red Lobster money, He's able to start laying down beats and practicing producing. So he's producing. He has a bunch of friends still in the music. Everyone's coming over. He's like the place to hang out. He says, Pharrell just stops by. His friend Magoo stops by. Like he has the best equipment. So everyone who does music in the Virginia Beach area is like coming to say hi. And one day he meets his soon-to-be best palio, Melissa Elliott. You might know her as Missy Elliott. Missy Misdemeanor on the track. I love Missy Elliott. I can't believe that Pharrell, Timbaland, and Missy Elliott have been pals since they were like 17 years old. I'm obsessed with it. It's like the coolest thing I've ever heard in my life. So she comes over one day, listens to what he has to play. He plays some beats for about 10 minutes, and she just sits there silently listening. I never even met this girl before, but she could match me every move. I played a beat and she started singing, freestyling. The way she sang over my beats, playing with the tempo, throwing harmonies in. I'd never seen anyone do that before. She was just super dope. Missy and Magoo came to my house pretty much every day after that. She'd bring the other members of FaZe and they would weave their harmonies over my beats. I was still DJing at parties for experience and extra pocket money. And I was working with the remaining members of Surrounded by Idiots on our own music. So he is having a great time just like hanging out in Virginia Beach making sick music with, I guess, the most talented people in the world. But the rest of them are like a little bit more ambitious. Pharrell is on a mission to like get into the music industry. That's happening separately. Missy was like, okay, Casey and Jojo are coming to town. I guess they were in a band called Jodakai. And she's like, we're just going to go find them and sing for them and get on their record label. And he was like, you're going to what? And she's like, yeah, I'll call you tomorrow when we're signed. Yeah, so she just sings for them outside of their concert. And the next day they get a call. And Missy Elliott, you want to talk about loyal. So this guy called Devante. So Devante is not the lead singer of Jodakai, but he is the producer. And he kind of runs it. And he's starting his own label underneath him. And he agrees to sign them to the label. And Missy Elliott is like, this is our producer. He produces everything for us. And so Jodakai is like, all right, bring him on. So Missy Elliott gets Timbaland signed. Yeah, it is really impressive because Devante has kind of a little group set up. So he has a bunch of producers and writers and musicians living in a house in New Jersey. And he's like, okay, I have producers that you can work with. And she's like, no, 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 I have a producer. She's like, I'm not leaving Timbaland behind. And she doesn't. She even said right before she went and met them, when we get signed, I'll make sure you get a part of the deal. I took a deep breath. It must be nice. I remember thinking to wake up every morning so sure that things are going to work out the way you want them to. But what I said was, good luck. I believe in you. The last part wasn't entirely true, but I was learning not to underestimate Missy, her talent or her willpower. So they get signed. He walks in and the first thing Devante says is, what's your name? And he goes, Tim. And he goes, like Timberland Boots. And that's how the name comes to be. He'd been DJ Timmy Tim up till then. And I kind of would like him to go back to that. So Jodakai has this house in Teaneck, New Jersey that they run out of. And they rent Missy Elliott, her bandmates, which are two other women, and Timbaland, this like two-bedroom apartment in Hackensack, which she says is nearby, kind of, like by a drive. And for some reason, the youngest member of the band that Missy Elliott runs also brought her ferret. So it's four people in a ferret in a two-bedroom apartment that he's also using as a studio. So Missy Elliott had been with a group called Faze. As soon as they get signed, they change it to Sista. Some advice he gives to younger people is if someone in the music industry wants to work with you, they're not doing you a favor. You're at the party because you've got something, a gift that they can use. Be humble. Know you've got to pay your dues, but don't sell yourself short. Just because you're unproven doesn't mean you have to bunk with a ferret, which good advice. It is really good advice. It's good advice that's nearly impossible to take, I think. Yes. I think to know the line when you're in such a precarious position where you're like, okay, this person could help me get in, but they could just as soon say, leave and never talk to me again. And they're the only person you know who's giving you a chance. And you're like, okay, well. Because it's like, I don't know. He is renting you an apartment. What are you going to say? No, we all need our own bedroom. They were literally 18 at this point. This happened right after high school. I don't think it's preposterous to have two to a room. That's how we all are freshman year of college. 
the way things evolve here. I yeah, think no, no, like no. It gets way out of hand. Referring to. I don't know that these initial living situations are like obviously red flags, but that's why it gets so hard. Yeah, because nothing's an obvious red flag right up front. So they work for months. They make 20 songs. They put together an album. They're so excited. They send it to Devante and they never hear back. And months go by and he's on tour. And like they know that he's busy, but they can't get him on the phone. They can't get anyone from the label on the phone. They can't get assistance. They can't even get anybody from the Hackensack house on the phone. And they start getting freaked out. Missy raised an eyebrow. Now this is damn slow. Somebody should tell us something. And then everybody's worried that they're getting dropped. So I think it's also part of those things where it's like, well, at least if they're not calling us, that means they haven't stopped paying rent. Missy is so wise. Let's just wait, Missy said. I'm not going to freak out yet. We made a good, solid album. Your beats are on point. The lyrics and melodies are solid. We've done everything we've been asked to do and more. This will work out. Let's just wait. So they do get dropped. It turns out Devante has been dropped. So everyone he's working with gets dropped, basically. I think his deal with the record label, like, kind of fizzled. Like his imprint. So now what, Missy asked. Missy was ready to stick it out. Timbaland was like, I guess we go home. But she says, no, we have to keep recording, Tim. We have to keep making songs for ourselves, Tim. I don't care if the only people who hear our music are you and me. We just have to keep doing what we're meant to be doing. I'm meant to write songs and sing. I know that. You have a gift for making music. I know that too. So then Devante shows up and he's like, okay, I have a different deal now. And because there are like too many girl groups happening, we have to drop Sista. But we can have Timbaland, Magoo, and Larry, who's their other friend. You guys can be a group and Missy will produce you guys. And they're like, okay, I mean, that sounds better than us going back to Virginia. So they all moved into the Teaneck house. They thought it would be a mansion, but it's just like a two-story regular suburban house. And the new rules are Devante owned the publishing rights to everything we created. It was entirely up to him to give us credit for the tracks. And if he wanted, he could walk away and sell the songs to other artists without giving us a dime or putting our names down as songwriters. If this deal was shelved the way Sista had been, then we'd all walk away with nothing, not even our own tunes. So the one thing they have in this situation is that when no one is using the recording studio at the Teaneck house, so when Jodakai is not there, when everyone else is touring or busy, they can just go in there and record whatever they want to record. So him and Missy are still making music together, but they're also in this weird deal where they've kind of just sold their souls to Devante. I mean, they're basically like uh, indentured servants, I would say. They're living this house, but it's like three to a room. They're not making any money. He talks about eating like the literal scraps of lunch that the Jodakai boys eat. Like they'll order pizza and then you get to go in and eat like the leftover pepperoni slices and the leftover crusts. Like that's how bad it is. They're mostly stealing ramen to eat. They're sleeping on the floor. They have to run errands and clean toilets. They're not getting paid for anything. He goes, every once in a while he'd throw us a bone. Like I got to produce in the meanwhile a hard driving mid-tempo track that had a six second sample from James Brown's seminal The Payback. The year was 1993 and I was 21 years old. So much was screwed up about my situation, but I kept telling myself, you're making music, you're making music. All that matters is you're making music. So they're contributing. Him and Missy Elliott are like contributing to these albums. And in exchange, they get to like squat in the home. I'll always give credit to Devante for what I learned. The problem was we are not being consistently compensated. So they're in this really fucked up situation where their dreams aren't coming true, but their dreams are on the horizon in front of them. And it's very much like that frat hazing situation of, well, maybe on the other side of this, there's something there. And at one point, Timbaland's beat that he had created was used in a song that Devante did with Tupac, No More Pain. And they just didn't give him any money, any credit, any anything. And they didn't even really acknowledge it to him. Missy Elliott heard it and goes, that sounds like one of your beats. And he's like, yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> yeah. And they just don't know what to do because it's also one of those things where it was such a power imbalance that they were like, well, if we make a stink about something, he could just send us home and then we never do anything ever again. Also, I think legally, that's what they had signed over, the rights to everything. Yeah. Missy says, are you going to speak up? No, but now I know who I'm working with, I said. And believe me, I'm not forgetting this one. Let's see what he can do for us. And if something doesn't pop soon, I'm moving on. So he says that, but he doesn't really mean it. The longer we stayed, the more twisted our situation became. We would go for days without eating. We'd be woken up in the middle of the night to run crazy errands. We were knocked around, kicked around, and beat down. For months on end, we did anything Devante asked us to do. We fetched food. We ran errands for the band and for the girlfriends of the band. We cleaned toilets, washed dishes, ate room temperature Chinese food from the plates they left behind. But we didn't leave. We didn't put up a fight. We were this close to our big break in the record industry, and we were that hungry. He's also meeting a lot of young talent. Like, this is a real incubator. So one of the people he meets is Genuine. And they lay down Pony just in the studio when everyone else is, like, busier on tour or whatever. And they give it to Devante, and they're like, How's this for a track? And Devante won't even listen to it or show it to anybody. Meanwhile, his mom calls him one day. 
It says, Tim, I hate to tell you this, but is there any way you can help me out? I've fallen behind on our mortgage payments and I'm in danger of losing the house. So now he's like, fuck, my mom is at home. He had been giving her some money, like cuts of the insurance checks, and he didn't realize how important that was because after his parents got divorced, his mom just couldn't keep up with the payments. And so now he's like, what am I doing this for? Why don't I just go home and get a real job and help my mom out? But she's like, don't. You got this. Then when things get really bad is that Devante decides he wants to be managed by Suge Knight. And if you don't know about Suge Knight, kind of me too, but I know the gist. (laughs) There's a documentary. The the gist is he ran Death Row Records with Dr. Dre and they ran with like an iron fist. And basically, if you didn't do what they said, they would threaten to kill you. And sometimes they would. And so he's like, why is Devante aligning with Suge Knight? This is very scary. This is not what I want to be a part of. He says it became clear that Devante wanted to add some of that gangsta lean to the legend of himself that he was creating in his mind. And he says that it became literally violent, that in order to pull rank, Suge's assistants would come over and just slap everybody in the house just to make sure that we all understood that there was a chain of command and any insubordination would be punished. I'm not naming names because some of the producers went on to become pretty well known, but one by one, we all got hit and for no good reason. One guy was slapped so hard that we had to rush him to the emergency room with a busted eardrum. He's so anxious to leave. He knows that this is a situation he has to get out of. It's becoming clearer and clearer every single day that he has to get out. I don't know that it's out. clear to him. I would actually say it's not clear to him. He says, and I remember this feeling of wanting to belong and how every day you keep thinking there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And when I get there, it will have all been worth it. So he is getting more and more Stockholm syndrome. And I think they're seeing it like hazing at a frat Mm -hmm. that like, okay, yeah, but we're the bottom guys. And as soon as we graduate to the next level, then it'll be okay. So you just have to like live it out. The longer he's in it, the more he's okay with it. But he's also freaked out that If he does leave, like any inclination or word from someone else that maybe he should get out of there is very scary because once again, he's putting in all this time and effort and like dignity to the idea that he'll make it in this group. He says, I'd made tons of music, but I hadn't reaped the benefit of it. I was stuck and I was afraid of leaving just before everything popped off. I didn't want to be the fifth Beatle. And then he gets a call that his mom's house has been foreclosed on. And he's like, okay, I just have to come home and get a job. And she, once again, is like, stick it out. Stay out there. Make music. You're making music. It'll happen. You will do no such thing. You are going to stay exactly where you are. I know the gifts that God has given you just as surely as I know that God will provide for me. Your brother and I will stay with your grandmother until I get myself sorted out. Just do it, Tim. You've come this far by faith. Don't walk away now. I don't know much about the music business, but I know that you don't get opportunities like the one you have all the time. If you come home, you'll be dining on regret every minute of the day. I don't want to see you suffering. Not in my name. So then it's winter in New Jersey. It's horrible. It's snowy. It's icy. And Devante wakes him up in the middle of the night and is like, you need to drive my girlfriend on this errand. And he can't say no. I mean, no one likes driving in a snowstorm. But, you know, he mentioned specifically that this is not something he felt good about. And the car spins out on black ice and he ends up wrapping it around a tree. He says his entire life flashes before his eyes. It's like a horrifying experience. And Dana, Devante's girlfriend, dies in the crash. So he wakes up in the hospital and finds out that he has survived, but she has not. Dana's death made me more determined than ever to get away from Devante. He traveled a lot and was away from the house often, but his lackeys were ever present, keeping an eye on us and the music that we made in the sweatshop that was the basement. Missy calls him and is like, you're in a really bad situation and you have to get out. And he hears it and he understands it, but he's like, where would I go? I have no money. All my music is here. Everything I've spent the last three years doing is just locked up here. And she's like, you need to create an exit plan, like get what you can and get out. He like hears her and doesn't really believe her, but she's getting out. And then the in-house engineer takes him out. And I think he's getting paid. I think he has less skin in the game because he's like a professional. He's getting paid, but he basically takes him out. And says, listen, buddy, you have to forget him. He's just using us. He's never going to put us on. And they come up with this code. And so this guy, Jimmy, the engineer, is like, I will preserve and replicate as many of your masters so that you can literally take the music with you. Because this is back in the day before you could just, like, upload it. Yeah, you couldn't just, like, copy it to a little drive and run. This was like the Spice Girls where you had to get the tapes in your panties and get out of there. It's so crazy. Missy Elliott is like, I'm getting out of here. He goes, you've heard of Stockholm Syndrome, right? After more than three years, I was bonded to Devante in ways that it would take me years to figure out. Where am I supposed to go? I took a deep breath and tried to stall. I think things might be changing. I'm hearing that Devante may be getting a deal with Sony. You are insane, Missy said, exasperated. He's taking us on tour. Do you still believe anything this dude says? I just don't want to walk away without having my shit in order. Fair enough, Missy said. Look, I'm not telling anyone to leave. It's just that you're the person I'm closest to. I just want you to know that my guy says that this is done. I think you should leave now. And of course, sweet Timbaland, always one to learn a lesson. Even though this situation was horrible and fucked up, he said, 
I vowed to treat others with respect and dignity and to demand that treatment for myself. It just sounds like it's getting more and more abusive at every turn. And something that Jimmy says to him that I think is so true, this is one of those things where when you're in a bad situation, it's like being in a bad relationship. Like you just have this idea that it'll get better. And it's like, if it was going to get better, it would have started good. And he just keeps saying, well, if I leave, I'll have to go home and I'll have nothing. He goes, I have no context in this industry without Devante. I won't have any context. And finally, Jimmy says, if Devante's context were that great, would you be sitting here after all these years of hard work with no money? Where are your checks, Tim? Why doesn't Ginny Wine have a deal? What's up with your deal with Magoo and Larry? This dude's full of it and he's going to drag the rest of us down. We have to go. That's so true. Sometimes you just have to look at the facts. If after three years of someone saying this is something I could do for you, they haven't done it yet, then they can't. The thing is, he has made contacts in the industry. He just doesn't realize it because he's like been emotionally beaten down by Devante. Think about the fact that Devante was sitting on Pony by Genuine. We refuse to even listen to it. And this guy's like, listen, that is a fucking hit if I know one in it. I mean, to this day, it's a song that like, as soon as you hear it, you just start having sex. Magic Mike is a movie that like, they're like, what if this song was a trilogy? <laughs> Literally. <laughs> this song is so sexy with what if three decades later? What if we just have Channing Tatum like hump a woodworking bench to this song for nine hours? And people were like, I How think that could be the Lord of the Rings. Make this more. <laughs> and in IMAX? <laughs> and Devontae wouldn't even listen to it. Anyway, so he actually doesn't bring Pony with him. He can't get it copied and he just has to get the fuck out of there. He goes back to Virginia with what he has. And he's like, okay, I have to recreate Pony. So he does. So he has all these interesting techniques of he loves like to catalog all the different sounds that you wouldn't normally hear in music. So something he was doing to create the sound of Pony is he was leaving records out in the sun to literally warp them. Like if you leave them out there enough, they'll like get hot and kind of meld, I guess. And then he would play whatever song was there and record that sound. And I'm like, ah, that is what it sounds like. It sounds warped. It sounds melted. It sounds like a wobbly record. (laughs) And it's so good. It's so good. (laughs) So he goes back home for a few weeks. He re-records Pony with Genuine. And he's like, I'm able to get every sound the same and Genuine sounds better. And I'm like, I love that you had already hit your peak. But luckily, other people had room to grow. (laughs) So now they have a better version of this track. They send it to the engineer, Jimmy. Jimmy somehow gets in front of Michael Kaplan, the head of Epic Records. I guess Michael is scrolling through a ton of their music and Jimmy's like, no, listen to it. And Michael's like, if it's good, it'll stop me. And of course, Pony stops him and he's like, what the fuck is this? I have to get these guys in here immediately. But they can't get Genuine in there because he is like kidnapped by Devante. So Timbaland gets in there the next day. And then somehow within 24 hours, word got back to Devante's camp that they were trying to sign Genuine. And of course, this sets Devante off being like, okay, we have to get him meetings. We have to get him signed first. He's ours. This guy's literally trapped in the house. Like they got one phone call to him and he's like, you don't understand. I can't physically leave. And they're like, all right, just like hold tight. We're going to figure out how to get you literally out of there. So finally, they're back in New York City walking down the street and Genuine just like turns on a dime and makes a physical run for it with the clothes (laughs) on his back. He literally walked away from Devante like a defector from a communist country with nothing but the clothes on his back. He walked into Epic Records, met with Michael Kaplan and walked out with a deal which meant I was about to become a producer with real tracks to my name. So within like months of leaving Devante, they are fucking moving and shaking. Which just goes to show you how fucking full of shit he was. Yeah. Today's episode is sponsored by Honey, the easy way to save when you're shopping on your iPhone or computer. There is nothing better than stumbling across a deal. I feel like a genius when I'm shopping for something that I've had on my list for ages and then I find out it's on sale. That is free money back to you, baby. Thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. You don't even have to type anything. Imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites and when you check out, the Honey button appears and all you have to do is click apply coupons. You wait a few seconds as Honey just scours the entire internet for you in seconds. And if Honey finds a working coupon, the prices, they just drop. I have a tote bag that I've been eyeing for ages. It's a little bit more than I would normally spend on a tote bag, but it was so beautiful and it looked sturdy and it just felt like something that would complete every outfit and I would put my laptop in it and bring it to the studio. I had an entire life imagined for this tote bag, but again, it was a little expensive. And one day I thought, you know what? Treat yourself to this tote bag. I decided to buy it and Honey had a 15% off discount code for me. I saved like 10 bucks. It was incredible. I felt like the most successful shopper in the world that day and every day that I shop online with Honey. 
Honey doesn't just work on desktops. It works on your iPhone too. Just activate it on Safari on your phone and save it on the go. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this show. Get PayPal Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash worm. That's joinhoney.com slash worm. And don't forget to tell me what you get. So as soon as he gets this deal, he's so excited. He runs back to Virginia and him and Missy just start putting down tracks. And they write this song for a band at the time called Sugar. It's called Sugar and Spice. They send it to the label. And who comes back and is interested in it? Aaliyah. The year was 1996. Missy and I were both 24 years old. So the other thing is, like, you went to college, basically. You went to, like, bad college. He did not come out in debt. That's true. I guess he went to good college. <laughs> I don't know. His mom lost the house. But got a better one. Not to spoiler alert it, you guys, but Timbaland ends up quite successful. <laughs> so Timbaland and Missy are laying down track after track. They are just on a high, absolutely killing it. Then they meet Aaliyah, and they're just like a trio, the perfect trio of musicians. They make incredible music together. So she had already put out an album. She comes in, hears a song, loves it. And they all start working on her second album together, which had a lot of hype around it because everyone's so afraid of the sophomore slump. I mean, they're putting this album together. Aaliyah like fights for their tracks. The way Aaliyah was willing to go to bat for us was astounding. I feel like I'd known her for years, not just weeks. Missy and I looked at each other in disbelief. So many years of the road being hard. How could it be that within a few short months of emancipating ourselves from Devante, things could be going so easily? They put together Are You That Somebody. Such a good song. They put together Try Again. So they do her whole album, One in a Million. She had all the talent, but what she had above and beyond anything was an instinct. An instinct for choosing the right projects, an instinct for transforming herself, and a curiosity that made her say yes, why not, in an industry known for playing it safe and profiting from giving the people the same thing again and again and again. And that is, I think, what really clicks with him so hard is because he loves doing something weird and different. I think that's like what gives him like the energy to keep going is like the idea of creating a sound that no one's ever heard before. He says it a few times in this book, but like the thing that he's always going after is something that sounds familiar, but also brand new. And those are the best songs. I mean, she was just so successful. She was so young and yet she changed the face of R&B. You could never pigeonhole her. The spring after One in a Million became such a massive hit. She graduated from the Detroit School for the Fine and Performing Arts. Then she recorded the title song for Fox's animated film, Anastasia. I didn't realize that. I love that movie. She became the youngest person to ever perform at the Academy Awards. Then she was in Romeo and Juliet, the remake with Jet Li called Romeo Must Die. She just was doing everything. She was the executive producer and handling all the music for that film. So then he puts out his own album called Tim's Bio, Live from the Basement. He works with a bunch of artists that he's become friends with. It isn't huge, but it's something. I guess I'm just like really up Timbaland's ass. But this is another thing that I really liked is he is like a little disappointed that this album didn't pop off. But he's like, you know what, going from producer to the main artist is a really hard thing to do. And my journey is my own. As long as I'm learning and doing new things, then I'm growing. And as long as I'm growing, I'm good. I don't know. I guess I compare him so much to so many of the other men we've read, which means that the bar is really fucking low. But the amount of men we've read that I know would be like, you know, my album didn't pop off because the record label did this and -and so-and-so did this. I feel like most people we've read would have some excuses and some bullshit and would like constantly, despite massive success, be referring back to the one thing that didn't work. And he's kind of like, you know what? It didn't go the way I wanted it to, but a lot of other stuff was really fucking good. Yeah. And you have to fail to succeed and grow and You have to try things and everything you try is going to work. So then him and Missy do her sophomore album. She's a bitch. And Missy has a hard time with this one because she's really in her head about bringing it for the label. She's really afraid of the sophomore slump. And so she comes in. She hates everything that he's made her. I sighed. Her energy was so different from what I'd been expecting to work with that day. I wasn't expecting all of the stress and I was still relatively new to the game. As a producer with a growing string of hits under my belt, my brand didn't depend on the fate of one album. But Missy was both a writer and a producer and an artist. I know she valued her work as a singer and a rapper just as much as she valued her work behind the scenes. The pressures on her were different and I had to recognize that. So they really get down to it. They have a little heart to heart and they put out a great album. He's working on a bunch of tracks and starting to get a reputation around town. And he starts becoming friends with a lot of people who love to just like stop by and see what he's working on and incredible songs come out of it. So one day Jay-Z stops by and is like, oh, what have you been working on? And he plays a beat and it becomes Big Pimpin'. Which it's really funny to me because I guess since then, Jay-Z has said that he like regrets some of the lyrics. Some lyrics become really profound when you see them in writing, not Big Pimpin'. That's the exception. It was like, I can't believe I said that and kept saying it. What kind of animal would say this sort of thing? 
reading it is really harsh. And Timbaland is like, it makes me admire him. I think making records is about the moment. And, you know, sometimes you say things in the moment that you wouldn't necessarily say later on. Is Big Pimpin' the worst thing Jay-Z has ever said? I don't know. I haven't like gone through every Jay-Z song, but I can't believe that in that era of rap music, Big Pimpin' is like the meanest thing he's said about a woman. So then he talks about the song Try Again that they wrote for Aaliyah. And the irony here is that he was really unhappy with that song and he kept obsessing over it and trying to fix it. And Missy and Aaliyah were like, no, it's good. And he's like, you know, sometimes you're wrong. And they were right. It was a good song. (laughs) It was a good song. It is a good song. It was 2000, the start of not just a new year, but a new century. So he is finally at a place in his life. He's been cranking out hits for, I guess, I think they've been out of Devante's basement, debasement, mm-hmm. for like three and a half, four years. And he is rich as fuck. So he's just killing it. He has so much money. He keeps buying cars and he buys a house. He buys his mom a house. His mom's like, you have to stop buying so many cars. And he's like, I like cars. You could drive a different one every single day. And then he gets the insurance check and it's $60,000. And he's like, I have to return some of these cars. He's also dating this girl on and off named Angela. And this is what I mean is I'm like, okay, he's not nice to these girls, but he like knows he's not nice. He's seeing this girl from home. And I do think it's like you can't marry the first girl that you date post getting successful. He's still relatively young. So they have this wedding and he is kind of cheating on her. And he's like, I don't know why we're together. And he's like, are you sure we should do this wedding? And she's like, yes. And then the week before, he meets some girl named Nia. And he's like trying to get with her. And she's like, no, I would never date a musician. You're all players. He's like, I'm not a player. And she goes, don't you have a girlfriend? He's like, well, I mean, technically, I have a fiance. (laughs) He's like, I'm different. I'm married. I think he had doubts about Angela from day one. They'd been dating on and off. And then he just decided he was old enough that he should get married. So he proposes and they're just going through with it. And he keeps on being like, are you sure you want to get married? And she's like, are you sure you want to get married? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm just seeing if you wanted to. So they just keep going back and forth where they're like addressing the invitations. And he's like, we're sure about this. And she's like, yeah, we're sure. And then it gets to the week before the wedding. He's met Nia. It's two days before the wedding. And he's like, I think we should go for a meeting with the pastor. And she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he goes to the pastor and he's like, do you think this is a good idea? And he like has to go home and be like, okay, no, I don't think this is a good idea. And it's two days before the wedding and she freaks out. And he is like, I am proud of myself for not getting married because it would have been the easier thing to do. And he like references when Pharrell came to him man to man and was like, I don't want to be a part of your group anymore. When they were 16. When they were 16. He's like, the way Pharrell just said it to me straight, that's what I had to do for Angela. And it's like, okay, this is a different situation, but you are right. Like, you shouldn't have let it go on this long, but it would have been worse to marry her if you, like, didn't want to. So then he gets into after Nia, he's single for a while, and then he's in Jamaica one day and he sees a woman. He goes, that's the woman I'm going to marry. He sends his friend over to hit on her and she sends him back and is like, don't do that. And then he comes over and is like, sorry, I did that. Can I take you out tonight? And she's like, no, I'm busy, but you can have my phone number. And they start chatting. And this begins a very long and winding. That was about in 2000. Yeah. So this the beginning of an eight-year sitch. They become kind of pen pals. They just talk on the phone a lot. And he's like, when are you going to come visit me? And she's like, shut up. He says, and then disaster struck. And all of a sudden, I wasn't thinking about relationships at all. August 25th, 2001, he wakes up to find out that Aaliyah has died in a plane crash. And he just really spins out. It destroys him for a while. He says the pain emotionally and then the pain in his arm from where he had gotten shot. It was always on and off. And that was excruciating. He completely shuts down. He won't invite anybody over. He won't even speak to his mom. He stops calling people back. He says all he does is eat and drink. He gains like 50 pounds. He becomes depressed and he doesn't think he ever wants to do music again. Yeah. I mean, he writes some really beautiful things about her. I mean, throughout this entire book, he's written beautiful things about her. But he says, I thought about the dinners out when we celebrated every number one record. If we had known our time together was destined to be short, I don't think we'd have done it any differently. No need for us to try again. We made music. We made each other happy. The three of us, Aaliyah, Missy, and I, were like kids in a musical relay race. We passed the baton back and forth, and together we went further and faster than any of us knew we could go. But then he talks about trying to make music after her death, and he is just in this depression. He's locked himself in his house. He's like, I don't need to make money anymore, so I don't need to make music anymore. I could just, like, die here. And his mom is calling and being like, do what makes you happy. You need to make music. It was like she didn't get it. When God silenced Aaliyah's voice, he had silenced me too. It felt like my ears didn't work. The music of daily life hid itself from me. Footsteps were just footsteps. Running water was simply running water. 
He had just started a record label called Beat Club and it folded almost immediately. He says it's partially because of this depression, but it seems like it folded like a month after she passed. So I think it was already not looking good. Yeah. And this is where I read a sentence that I think made my jaw drop. I had in quick succession signed three acts who I believed in. There was Bubba Sparks, a rapper with a country twang from Georgia. Of course, we all know Bubba Sparks. Bubba was white. What? Did you know that? I didn't. Did you guys know that? When I heard that Bubba Sparks was white, I felt like my whole life I'd been lied to. And then there was two others. So Miss Jade and Kylie Dean. I personally have not heard of either of those women. So I don't know how they're doing now. He still stands by Miss Jade. Yeah. I mean, he still says Kylie Dean was really talented. Her album just like never made it out. Pharrell, him and Chad and NERD were producing powerhouses. Yeah. Sometimes when I listen to his songs, it hurt. I wondered if I would ever produce music that was so pure and joyful again. Missy kept urging me to get back in the studio, pour your paint onto a track and make that music that Aaliyah would be proud of. He just couldn't. All he could do was drink and eat. He is having a truly hard time and his imprint on the label folds and he's uninspired. He just doesn't know where to go next. And he and Missy start working on another album together and they're just clashing. He also keeps trying to get this woman, Monique, he met in Jamaica to come out to visit him. And because he's in such a bad place, he makes a huge mistake, which he acknowledges now, which is he's always begging her to come visit him in Miami. He's like, let me take you out. Let me fly you out. She lives in Atlanta. Finally, she agrees to fly out and see him. And he's shopping for sneakers at the mall. And he has one of his like henchmen go get her from the airport. And she waits at the house for two hours. So by the time he gets back from the mall, she had already left and gone back home. Yeah, she was like, I mean, I came all the way out here to see you. If you're not going to spend time with me, I'm not staying. And he's like, okay, so she is different. And he goes, believe it or not, I had the nerve to be mad. I'd paid for her flight. I had a whole romantic weekend. I started sputtering and talking like I was some badass Don Juan who'd been stood up. Then I realized I wasn't mad at her. I was mad at myself. So the work starts to pick back up, luckily. And Jay-Z comes through. He's doing the Black Album, which is his farewell album. And Timbaland, even in his lowest lows, is like, I know I have to be a part of this. This is like an iconic moment. And they come up with Dirt Off Your Shoulders, which, you know, you've heard it. Yeah, then Missy comes and she's doing her third album. She doesn't like anything he comes up with. He plays her 20 beats. She doesn't like any of them. And they get into a fight. The day after that, I told Missy I had a session booked with another artist. I avoided her for a whole week because like Erica Badu said, I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about my shit. (laughs) Nobody in the world knew me like Missy Elliott. But when she turned her nose up at my beats, I was hurt. And so then finally, Jimmy, the engineer who's been with them since way back when, is like, you guys can't freaking fight over this dumb stuff. You love each other. Get back together. Yeah, and they don't work together as much anymore. And he's like, there's rumors in the industry that me and Missy have had this huge falling out, which is completely untrue. We just have worked together for so long that she's allowed to work with other producers and grow in that way. He does end up even producing this whole album and it goes platinum. So like the next album, I think he only produces two of the songs instead of the whole album. But he's like, yeah, we're fine. We love each other. Yeah, I think that they're like brother and sister. They just don't have to do everything together all the time. Unlike us. Yeah, brother and sister who do have to do everything together all the time. So he meets Khalees. He starts working with newer artists, or not even new artists necessarily, but like new artists and new to him artists, and is just getting inspired again. It takes a little bit, but things start to really pick up for him, and he gets his creative spark back. This is the part of the book that I get kind of bored by. I mean, some of it was interesting to me, but this does get a lot of... And then I worked on this album, and so he does Brandy's fourth album, Aphrodisiac. I will say at this point, the meat of his story is kind of wrapped up, and now he's just talking about other stuff he's worked on. Him and Monique finally get back together. They just are friends for so long. They're always going out to lunch, always chatting, and finally he calls her and is like, let's just do this. Please give me a shot. So before they end up officially dating, this is, I guess, another big part of it, is that he decides to get his health back in order. After Aaliyah died, he really stopped taking care of himself at all. He was diagnosed with diabetes. He had sleep apnea. His blood sugar was high. His cholesterol was high. He just wasn't doing well. Yeah. And so finally, he realizes if he wants to get his mind right, if he wants to feel inspired, if he wants to feel good, he needs to be healthier. So he starts losing weight. He does get intense with it. This is the thing is he's like, and then I got really healthy. I lost 100 pounds in six months. And I'm like, I don't know that that's the healthiest way to, whatever. It's fine. Jimmy Iovine brings him back on, sets him up with Justin Timberlake. At first, he says everyone thinks I sold out when I worked with Justin Timberlake, but he thinks Justin Timberlake is like the real deal. They come up with Crimea River. I didn't realize this was Justin's debut solo album. Yeah. And of course, Crimea River, you know, we hate Justin. We hate Justin Timberlake. But a banger is a banger. Every time I hear Crimea River, even the music video, I'm like, I know what he did with this is fucking mean. 
and I don't stand by the sentiment, but this song is so fucking good. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. And he talks about adding the Gregorian chants to make it timeless sounding because heartbreak is timeless. And I'm like, you nailed it. Because that song came out, what, like 20 years ago? And I'm like, oh, it's so good. It's so good. Every time I hear it, I say, someone dump me and punch me in my boob. <laughs> I need to feel something. Justified went triple platinum. And then he works with Nelly Furtado. They do Maneater, Promiscuous. The song Promiscuous came out of, he's like, what kind of music do you want to do? And he talks a lot about when you're a producer, you're kind of a therapist. You have to get to the artist and say, where are you at in your life right now? What songs do you want to write? What sound do you hear in your head? Like, what's the vibe we're going and for? And so Nelly says, I want every kind of music. I don't want to stick to one thing. I want to be unlabelable. I want to be promiscuous with my music styles. Yeah, she goes, I want it to feel like I'm cheating on every genre of music. He goes, what a promiscuous girl. <laughs> That's a promiscuous thought. That album is iconic. It's so good. There are so many albums during this time where I'm like, fuck, that one was so good. I know. And so then he talks about getting back together with Justin. And in this time, Justin had not been singing. He had been acting a ton. He was an alpha dog, Black Snake Moan, Shrek. And they're kind of like, all right, you're doing everything but singing this because he was scared of a sophomore slump. And he gets in the studio and he says they went two weeks without writing anything. And Justin didn't like anything. He's like, I don't want this. I don't want that. Obsessing over making hits is the biggest hurdle to anything I've ever attempted to do in the studio. My failures are just as vital my process as my success. Not everything I've done has worked, but I know by now that I'll never get the big hits if I don't give myself room to be bold enough to try something that might fail. It's like mining for gold. You've got to do the extra work. Getting your hands dirty is the best part. You've got to love the work as much as you love what the work brings. They're like, well, what did you love about your last album? Something interesting to me is they actually end up riffing off of Crimea River and they're like, okay, we're not going to copy it, but let's just start with something we like because all you're saying is what you don't like. And from there, they riff, they add songs. And then I guess Justin actually writes all his songs in his head and just sings it. And he goes in and he right out the gate sings My Love. I mean, I have to say future sex love sounds. It's a good album. Video where he's in that like cube. I hate Justin Timberlake, but I love when he's like floating around. Like he does a lot of backwards jumping onto things in his music videos. And I enjoy that. They bring Danger in. They end up doing this album, which goes like triple platinum, sells 12 million. He starts meeting some new young artists like Carrie Hilson. And he also decides to try to start his own little label again. So his original label, it didn't go well. He wasn't giving those artists enough attention. He didn't have the understanding and experience of what it took to like nurture a new artist. But he's like, okay, now I can do it. And he is just on here kind of hyping up these other people. I mean, he signed One Republic and... They did apologize. Did they ever do a second song? I don't know. But Timbaland and One Republic is so... Even though I know that song and I know that it was like the song of a decade, when I think of it in a sentence, I'm like, how random. He does that song Rehab with Rihanna. I don't know. He does a lot of shit. He puts out his own album. This is, again, it's when you get to the end of the music. And then there's no more struggle left. He gets to kind of do whatever he wants these days. And then he finally married Monique, which is what he wanted all his life, in 2008 on the island of Aruba. And he said, today we're raising three children together and I could not be happier. I was never sure that I had what it took to be a good father, but I do. And I enjoy fatherhood immensely. Yeah, he talks about his kids. He's very proud of them. I mean, his daughter shows incredible musical promise, but he's like, we're not going to really think about that for a while. He's like, I want to protect her childhood before she sees the industry. And I'm like, good, good parenting. And now he works for Empire. He does all the music for it. He does an entire chapter like explaining the plot of Empire. It makes me want to watch Empire, but I also am like, I don't think you need to take up space on this. I just think it's so interesting that this book, it seems like, was built around promoting Empire. And then promoting some girl that he's like, and now I'm working on this girl's album and it's going to be huge. This came out in 2015. I've never heard of this girl in my life. So not everything pans out. So this book is called The Emperor of Sound. And on the cover, it says the executive music producer of the hit show Empire. And I'm like, okay, is that what he's known for? That's crazy. To whom is he the executive music producer of the hit show Empire? Except for the other assistants who work on Empire who calls him that. And then, like all good memoirs, LOL, it ends with a listicle, Timbaland's rules for collaboration. I'll just run through them real quick because I think they're good. When, not if, you have to be optimistic, pay your dues, but don't be used. Fair enough. Every team needs an experienced industry vet with heart and a talented rookie willing to take a risk. Who's the vet? Who's the rookie here? We're the vets. Bug is the rookie. <laughs> Listen more than you talk. That's... No experience is wasted. Bring your whole self into the room. 
Know what makes you different and work it. Respect your instrument. Don't prejudge your collaborators. Use the whole box of crayons and then try again if at first you don't succeed. I mean, those are some good bits of advice. Oh, you know what we left out? He like works with Bjork. I know something about the way he talks about that experience about being so excited to work with her because she wants to do something so crazy and he can't wait to give her like the craziest thing. And he talks about the best compliment is when she's like, yeah, you've nailed the sound that was in my heart. And she literally comes in and she goes, okay, I had a dream last night that I fell out of a plane and blew up the White House and everybody was floating above me. Can you make that into a song? And he goes, chaos, got it. <laughs> and he's like, and I had those same dreams too. I totally got where she was coming from and I made that into a beat. And I'm like, damn, okay, I really could not be a producer because I'd be like, Bjork, you sound crazy. <laughs> he ends it, he says, I can honestly say that my workday is a happy loop of routine that fills me with purpose. Rise and grind, give thanks, show up and listen, make music and give back. Hold my loved ones dear. Then I hit repeat. That's beautiful. Oh, my God. He ends it also by quoting Marianne Williamson. At one point, he's quoting Nick Cage. At one point, he's quoting Twyla Tharp. I mean, he's always quoting. He's a consumer. He's a thinker. He's a listener. He's a listener. And he's got a catalog of sounds, and some of those sounds are quotes. And he became the emperor of that catalog. So, emperor's new groove, indeed. His new groove is my oldest groove. These, we I've been grooving. are grooving. Ashley, what'd you think of Timbaland? I love him. I know, me too. This was a fun book because you know why? It got a little bit like, okay, at the end, you're listing a lot of things. But I will say the things he was listing for the first time were the songs that I actually knew. But mostly, I think it was the stories of struggle, like the stories of meeting Missy Elliott and how she believed in herself and believed in him and how they came up together. All these like friendships of him coming up with Pharrell. You know, I get off on like creative friendships where everybody's like moving up together. And also the story of his mom believing in him. The story of like being under that guy Devante's thumb. And then he gets out. And when he gets out, things just go great. And then sometimes they go bad. Like there are ups and downs and things weren't always just up and up. But he kept having to believe in himself and like reinventing himself. And it doesn't seem like he's ever complacent. When he was like, okay, I've produced the shit out of the 2000s. Now I'll executive music produce a TV show. And that'll be a new interesting experience that inspires me. And he talks at the end of the book about how he like won't be satisfied until he has created music that spans generations like Quincy Jones. And I'm like, I can't wait to see what you do next, my friend. I can't wait to see what Bug is dancing to at her bat mitzvah. Oh, my God. What she bumping and grinding to when she becomes a woman. Timbaland, great 200-page, quick little read. The sounds of my childhood. Quick read, good hits, good feeling. I emoted. No self-pitying, which I appreciate. I'm sure there's many a woman who has been scorned by Timbaland. And listen, if you have some bad stories about him, I don't doubt it. But he does say that like after his experience with Devonta, he's like, I never want to treat anybody this way. I do believe he's got that mom in his ear saying you better fucking treat people good. He was yeah. raised right. I mean, he obviously left a girl at the altar. But does that make you bad? Anyway, I loved it. And Ashley, who else do we love? Thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. Thank you to Morgan0630. Oh, Morgan, I appreciate you so much. Thank you, Queen of the Surf. You are my queen, and I bow down to you every time I go into the ocean. Thank you to Leanna L. Yurenko. L, more like a W for most winningest comment of all time. Thank you to Nathan Ward. You deserve an award for this beautiful review. Thank you to Strat Mama. I hope you strut, Mama. Thank you to Dr. Pepper Whore. Listen, for those 31 flavors... Is it 31? How many flavors are in a Dr. Pepper? Whatever it is, I'm a real slut for it too. Thank you to Carrie DK. I DK, how I deserved such a beautiful review, but I appreciate it. Thank you to K Murr. You are a gorgeous mermaid to me. Thank you to Quail. I don't like that people hunt you guys down because I think you're the most majestic bird in town. That is all for this week. I love you guys so much. Thank you.